Our gospel lesson today comes from John chapter 6, 1 through 14. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, Where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, Even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, Now gather the leftovers, so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled twelve baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. This is the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. God, we uh, thank you as we do weekly for this room and this place. Thank you for these people. Uh, Thank you that week after week you send your spirit and you show up here. You work in us and through us and we are grateful. And so we ask for that this morning, that you would come, that you would be with us, that you would delight us in Surprise us that you would give us fresh eyes at what's most likely a familiar story and that you would give us the courage and um, creativity uh, to put ourselves on the shore of the Sea of Galilee that we might learn more of you and more of ourselves in light of you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Um. I actually have two more things that I have forgotten to announce the last two weeks. They normally don't let me do announcements because I forget them all the time. Um, One is, if you're available the first and third, Katie, third and fourth Sunday of the month to be on our setup team, we have lost this. This is why I don't do announcements. I mess up the announcement live in action. Um, We've lost a setup team member due to health uh, reasons, and so we would love to fill that hole uh, quickly. So the third and fourth Sunday, if you're available, Katie's in the back. Um, the second thing is, I, I forgot to update you on must-have gifts. Do you remember must-have gifts? Okay, uh, must-have gifts, uh, we do every Christmas time. We share it with the Maryville Vineyard, and we pull all our money together, and we give money um, all over our county and the world 
um, to folks in need at Christmas time. And um, this year, uh, we had three goals, uh, three places that we wanted to give money away. Um, the first was what we called gifts and groceries. It was, um, that was something that really stayed a lot of it locally in Alcoa. And we had a goal that we wanted to raise $3,000 um, to help folks in need in our community at Christmas time. We raised $7,363. Yeah, that was amazing. Um, the second need was for uh, the Isaiah 117 house. Uh, the Isaiah 117 house is um, kind of like a transitional facility between when a kid um, would be taken out of their home and put into the foster care system or taken out of a foster home and um, replaced uh, in a different home. And, and so it exists as sort of this in-between space, and it's incredible, and they're building a home in our community. We're fired up about it. We wanted to raise $5,000 for them. We raised $7,500. I know, we beat that goal too. And then um, the last thing is the Abercrombie family. The Abercrombies are dear friends of our church, and they um, uh, run a medical clinic in a remote village in Haiti, and they wanted to be able to raise money to pay a doctor, help pay a doctor, um, which will cost them $10,000 a year to pay a doctor to work at their medical clinic. And... Um, and so we wanted to be able to pay for the first year of the doctor to let them go ahead and get that done. And we raised not $10,000, but $22,794. That's two years or two doctors. I don't know. Um, I mean, we wanted, we wanted to raise $18,000 and we more than doubled it and raised almost $40,000. So thank you. Like, thank you, thank you, thank you for being generous and um, for at Christmas time when money is tight, uh, giving back to people who money is, I promise, tighter. Uh, so thank you, thank you, thank you. And I feel like we should, just, we should clap again because we should celebrate this. It's a big deal. We're a very little church. <laughs> so it's fun when you get to, you and your big brother get to come together and raise some money. So, um, we are now in the third week of Epiphany, or the third week of the Epiphany, however you want to say that. And uh, here at Springbrook, we are joining um, the churches all over the world. And for the last couple of weeks and for the next couple of weeks, we are intentionally um, turning our eyes, looking at stories of the life of Jesus. Uh, stories that remind us of who Jesus is. And what he's about, uh, stories that offer our tired brains and our tired hearts a reminder of where this whole thing is going. Um, we said a few weeks ago, epiphany uh, literally means to shine through. That's what the word means. And so uh, for us, it's a season um, as the church where we're looking at stories that for so many of us are really, really familiar stories. Um, and we want to sit in them, uh, these familiar stories, trusting that new things will shine through uh, the old stomping grounds, that, that we would trust and hope that God would surprise us through things that we think that we probably already know. And so um, my guess is today's lesson that Kyle uh, read to us is probably a really familiar story to you. Uh, even if you didn't grow up in the church or haven't been around the church much, oftentimes the story, uh, this story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people shows up kind of all over the place and um, myths and rumors and art and movies in all kinds of places. So um, I, I really, as we look at our story this morning, I, I really just want to kind of move into the story and feel the movement of the story, work our way uh, through it, taking some glimpses at what uh, these moments with Jesus and the disciples and a whole crowd of people would have looked like. Um, 
But before we jump in, uh, there's something that is really distinct about the story that Kyle read to us this morning. Um, There are a lot of stories of Jesus that appear in multiple places all over the Bible. Um, But this is the only miracle outside of the resurrection that exists in all four Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them, this is the only story, uh, miraculous story outside of the resurrection that all four of them tell uh, across the board. And I think that's really, really interesting. Um, I don't think it like devalues other stories that don't make it into all four books. Um, But I do think it's worth noting that that there was something about this day and something about this story that, that all four writers of the gospel were so moved by are like so marked by uh, that they couldn't have left it out. That all four of them felt like this was the essential, can't end up on the cutting room floor, this story had to be told. Um, And so with that in mind, uh, there are so many things that we could say about this story. Um, For a little while, I planned on just spending one month in one story because we could tell it four different ways, but... Uh, I'm not going to. Um, so, but we are, we're gonna, we're just gonna move through it this morning. We won't hit everything, but I hope we'll hit um, some really good stuff. So, um, when we pick up in John chapter 6, where Kyle read, uh, Jesus and the disciples, they have pulled away and they are crossing the Sea of Galilee to be alone. And so, to offer a little bit of context, if we would uh, read back a few verses or read in the other um, stories right before this, um, Right before this moment is happening, word has just gotten to Jesus that John the Baptist has been murdered. And so uh, John the Baptist, he's Jesus' cousin. We talked about him last week. Uh, Last week we left him baptizing Jesus in the Sea of Galilee. And this week we find Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee uh, to mourn the death of his cousin. Uh, this week, our scene begins right after he's been killed. And John the Baptist dies um, in a, he's beheaded in a drunken pact with a powerful man and his daughter. And, and so we have Jesus and uh, he's pulled away from the crowd by boat and he's crossed a sea and he has climbed a hill, John told us, all of these things in order to rest and to mourn uh, the death of his cousin with his closest friends. And, and this may be a really obvious side note uh, right here in the story, but um, Jesus, everything that we read about Jesus doing really happened in a three-year period. Jesus' ministry existed for three years on earth, and the, the writers of the Bible include uh, numerous times that Jesus pulled away to be quiet and alone and to rest. Uh, in Luke's gospel, Luke says uh, that uh, Jesus would often slip away into the wilderness to pray. And I just feel like if Jesus did, uh, again, the obvious uh, side note, but if Jesus did all of the stuff that he did in three years, and if he found plenty of time to rest, then rest might be a prescriptive thing that some of us need to hear. That some of us might need to hear that it is a good thing to rest when things get wild. And it is a good thing to take time to mourn when things are heartbreaking. Maybe that's just a side note for me, but I thought maybe it might be for more of us. That Sabbath is a prescriptive thing of Jesus, not a descriptive thing of Jesus. It's absolutely for us. Uh, That was for free. Okay, back to the story. Uh, Jesus and the disciples, they've pulled away, um, and they cross the lake, they go up on the hill, and the crowds still find them. Like, they've gotten as far away as they can, the crowds uh, still find them. John tells us in this story and in plenty of others that crowds followed Jesus everywhere that he went. Uh, They were curious about him, and they saw him healing people, and they were curious about what he had to say, and so they followed him everywhere. 
Uh, Mark, when he tells the story of this moment in his gospel, he says that um, when Jesus saw the crowd, he looked at them, he looked at all of the people, and that he sighed a deep sigh, and that he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And I love that. We find Jesus, he's pulled away to rest, and yet he ends up going back to the crowd. And I think it's important that we understand that Jesus isn't drawn to the crowd out of compulsion, but that he's drawn to the crowd out of compassion. Jesus uh, was moved to compassion from deep in his guts uh, to spend the day preaching to and healing a whole crowd of people. So late in the afternoon, uh, the disciples, they come to Jesus and they say, stop talking. Send these people home. This is, there's, there's a signal that one of our staff members has for me when I'm rambling on. The stop talking. Send these people home. <laughs> it, it's, it's a thing. Uh, so they come to Jesus. They say, stop it. Send these people home. They are hungry. And we're in the middle of nowhere. And they need somewhere to, they need to find somewhere to stay. And they need to find something to eat. Go send them home. And then John tells us that Jesus asked Philip. Uh, he asked him this question. Where can we buy bread for all these people? And Philip replies, seriously? Seriously? That would cost us so much money. We don't have enough. We do not have enough money to feed all of these people. That's Philip's response. And so uh, we learn from the other gospels that, that the way Jesus takes Philip's answer is that he issues a challenge to him. He says to the disciples, then go around and find whatever you can and you feed the people. Philip's over here just trying to be thrifty. And then Jesus issues him this challenge. You go, okay, well, if we don't have enough money, then you go feed them. You find a way to make this happen. And so uh, then John tells us that Andrew, the, the brother of Peter, he finds a boy in the crowd with a sack lunch who's willing to give up what is his in order to make enough for everybody else. And, and in my mind, it's so appropriate to me uh, that, that it's a kid who shares his food. It's so appropriate to me that it's a kid who shares his food because um, only a kid is naive enough to think that the amount of food he has to give Andrew is helpful, right? Only a kid would think that. Uh, this is not the only time in the scriptures that, that a kid becomes like this perfect picture of faith. Uh, th there is, here's the thing. There is no way in a crowd of 5,000 people that this is the only food there, right? There, there's no way. I don't believe for a second that this is the only lunch in a sea of over five. It says 5,000 men. So what, 10, 15,000 people? There's no way that this is the only food. Do I believe that I would have shown up in that crowd of 5,000 people with no food because I forgot it? Yes. Do I believe that everyone else would have? No. No way. I was never, I've never been the mom that remembers the snacks. I just am friends with the moms that remember the snacks. It's an important lesson. There's no way that, there, that, there, that there's no food here. What I believe more likely is that in this crowd of people, this kid was the only one naive enough uh, to believe that giving up the little that he had to take care of himself might be able to be used for the benefit of everyone. My guess is that as the disciples walked around looking for what was out there and asking people if they had anything to spare, that, that plenty of people did the whole like slide your food uh, in your pocket and oh, 
You know, it's like when my kids take cookies downstairs and I go downstairs and say, who has eaten an entire sleeve of Oreos? And everyone's hands are magically under the blankets and their pupils are triple the size. And they say, oh, no. You know, I could imagine plenty of that. Do you have anything to spare? Oh, mm, mm. you know, you just make sounds, then you don't lie. Um, <laughs> that, that probably happened. I, I think there were probably plenty of folks who maybe they didn't hide their food as much as they looked at it and thought, well, there's just, there's not enough here to go any further than me and my family. Plenty of people who just looked at what they had and just thought it wasn't enough. Uh, but this little boy, he handed over what he had. And when I picture it, when I picture this little boy in this moment, I picture this kid like beaming with joy. Like in my mind, this kid believes something that nobody else in this story is able to believe at this point. In my own mind, this kid knows that this is going to be a big moment, that, that he knows this because he believes that Jesus really might be who the grown-ups say Jesus really might be. And so he gives what he has just because the disciples asked. He's too innocent and too naive to think that it wouldn't be enough for what Jesus has planned moving forward. And so when I imagine uh, the story, the kid gives his food to Andrew, and as Andrew's taking it to Jesus, I imagine the kid's following him like he's in a special role now. You know, like he's sneaking to the front, and he's going to get a good look at what happens next. Uh, there's, there's no real evidence in the story that anybody other than the disciples uh, really sees the miracle as it's happening. When you read all four Gospels, uh, th there's not a lot of evidence that anybody else really knows what's going on in the moment. Like maybe thousands of people knew what was going on, uh, but all the texts really give us is that the crowd divided up into groups and waited to be served by the disciples. Uh, there's no real clarity that anyone beyond the disciples really knew what was happening. But in my mind, when I imagine it, that boy who gave his lunch away, he was watching. He was watching. He knew something was going to happen. He was waiting and watching for the magic to begin. Uh, do you know about this app that lets your kids uh, see where Santa is on Christmas Eve? Yeah? Some of y'all are like bah humbug on Santa, and you can't. This app is hilarious. Your kid can watch it, and he'll see where Santa is all over the world. And so Huck, like every year, he gets very interested in this thing, and he'll sit with his phone, and he'll be like, where is he? Where is he? And he's like knows that there's magic on the edge. He knows that something might just happen because if you grew up and Santa came to your house, you always wondered like, will he really come? I don't know. And so it's like this magic moment where he's waiting. He's like something big uh, could be happening. That's what I think of, that this guy is, is elbowed his way to the very front of the group. And he's like, what's going to happen? And so I wonder if he saw Andrew like cautiously and nervously hand the food over to Jesus. And I wonder if this little boy watched as Jesus prayed over it and started to break it up and divide it up. Uh, what do you picture that? Like when you picture Jesus breaking up the five loaves and the five fish, think about it in your brain. What do you picture? I always, I always picture five like fluffy, perfectly crispy on the outside French baguettes. Like Jesus snaps them and it's like, you know, the little crumbs. Like these fluffy, fluffy breads. And then I picture the fish like two um, sea bass. I, what's a big fish? 
salmon, I don't know, that he has these big fish. And then, he, you know, it's kind of, that's what the art says. There's like these loaves and they look fluffy. And then there's these fish and they look like person-sized fish. Uh, but as I read, uh, read about this story this week, the truth is in reality, that's not what we're dealing with at all. That's really not what it would have looked like at all. This would have been food uh, packed in the morning or days uh, before, uh, packed possibly days before. It was, it was food that was meant to last for hours and hours and hours in uh, the heat of Israel. The bread most likely would not have been fluffy or perfectly crispy on the outside. Um, John tells us it was a barley loaf. Uh, Barley is far less expensive and less Epicurean uh, than wheat. Uh, Most likely it would have been unleavened, more like a flatbread flatbread or a cracker. Um, And then the fish, the fish, these are fish for a boy. And so they very likely would have been small or dried or uh, smoked or pickled in some way. A lot more like a sardine than a sea bass. don't know where that fish came from. I don't even know what a sea bass looks like. Um, <laughs> other than it appears on your plate and it costs a lot of money. Um, five crackers and two sardines is probably a far more accurate way of describing what we're talking about. Uh, that's why I called it a Lunchable earlier. I called it a Lunchable because it helps my mind uh, connect and realize that Jesus didn't take a feast and turn it into a bigger feast. What he did was so much wilder than that. And so Andrew, he comes to Jesus and he takes this Lunchable to Jesus and then Jesus divides it among the disciples to serve. And if, if you think about that small amount of food um, and imagine how tiny it must have felt for Andrew to hand over to Jesus with a crowd of thousands behind him, um, imagine what it would have felt like when that was divided by 12. When five crackers and two sardines were divided by 12, five crackers and two sardines divided by 12 would have been humiliating. It's the part of the story I want to skip over reading every single time I read it because I've known Jesus long enough and followed Jesus long enough to know that this is absolutely something he would do because he asks us to do all kinds of embarrassing things. Have you ever felt like God asked you to pray for someone at the grocery store? Not like the grocery store when you're traveling, like your grocery store where you know everybody. You're standing right next to the carrots. Some of you are like, oh, yeah, I live for that stuff. And others of you, like me, are like, that's embarrassing. How can I make praying look like I'm actually weighing potatoes? Jesus, he, he asks us to do crazy things, and sometimes it's embarrassing. If I put myself in the shoes of the disciples in this moment, carrying uh, scraps, literally, of food to a field full of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, my guess is I would have forgotten all of the incredible things that Jesus had done leading up to this point, and I just would have been furious, and I would have been humiliated. Why does he make us do this weird stuff? He's always making us do weird stuff. But in their obedience, as they uh, continue to serve the fish and the bread, before their very eyes, what was once want becomes plenty. What was once not enough becomes more than enough. There's not a lot of evidence that this played out like a magic trick. Jesus is not the genie in Aladdin the cool picture. Luke's gospel tells us that it's during the meal that that Jesus was continuously handing the disciples bread and fish. And so a little bit at a time, five crackers and two fish becomes a feast. Little by little, it becomes enough. Because of course he did it that way. Because Of course he did. Of course this is his miracle. Since the beginning of time, God has 
always and constantly been in the business of turning nothing into something. God's favorite amount of anything is not enough. That is his favorite amount. God's favorite amount to work with is, oh, there's not enough here. Our uh, oldest scriptures tell us that God created the world out of nothing, and they say that he made people out of dirt. He has, since the beginning of time, done crazy things with not enough. He used regular, normal, terrified men and women to build and lead a nation. He used a boy to kill a giant, and he put babies into the wombs of women that the Bible called as good as dead. He has blown faith into the hearts of men and women since the beginning of time when they barely had any. Not enough is his very favorite amount. Not enough for God leaves room for the Holy Spirit to do all the wild stuff. The Bible is full of plenty of stories of not enough becoming abundance. I mean, if we just looked at, look at the people that we've talked about recently. Uh, we talked about the shepherds a few weeks ago. They, they weren't enough for anyone. They were hooligans. And, and we talked about the wise men. They were Gentiles. Mary was a teenager, and Joseph probably wasn't much older than that. And all throughout the Bible, the people just keep going. Peter, he gets things wrong constantly. Rahab was a prostitute. Esther was a woman. David was a murderer who drank too much and danced naked in front of everybody. Job uh, lost everything, and so did Ruth. Jonah disobeyed. Joseph was everyone's least favorite brother. Jacob uh, wasn't enough, so he literally wrestled himself into the favor of God. Martha, uh, in the New Testament, Martha complains about Mary not helping out enough in the kitchen, and Jesus rebukes her and tells her she's wrong. Lazarus runs out of breath, and so does Jairus' daughter. Moses had a speech impediment. Should I keep going? Not enough is God's very, very favorite amount. And what's interesting to me is that if not enough is God's favorite amount, it's interesting to me that on the flip side, not enough is our very favorite excuse. Right? It's our favorite excuse. Not enough is our very favorite reason for not doing things that we think God might just be asking us to do. We don't give our money away because we don't have enough money. And we don't volunteer for things or go to small groups or spend time with Jesus because we don't have enough time or, you know, whatever. Uh, we don't sign up for the scary things that God calls us to because we're in a bad place or because we don't have enough wisdom or courage or kindness or whatever it is we feel like he's asking of us. It is far and away our very favorite way out of something. Not enough. Not enough money, not enough time, not enough gifts, not enough knowledge, not enough courage. And so we very often spend our days listening to the scarcity of the world when God wants to use our lack for abundance. Uh, Walter Wengren, when he talks about uh, this uh, story, he says that one of the things that this story is teaching us is that as Jesus followers, we are supposed to forever be in the business of bread making. Here's what I think he means. Not bread making like a rap song. I mean, sure, make a lot of money. I don't care. Um, what I think he means is that as Jesus followers, we are supposed to be uh, the people who live our lives as if it is possible to make a lot out of a little. As if it's possible to make a feast out of a snack. If there is anyone on the entire earth who is set up to believe that it is possible to turn not enough into abundance, it's people who claim to follow Jesus. 
The kingdom of God, it's not a kingdom of scarcity. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of plenty. And so we ought to be in the business of reconditioning our brains out of a scarcity mindset and into a kingdom one. And listen, I am the furthest thing you are ever going to find from a prosperity or like health and wealth gospel. I, I don't even kind of believe that if you follow Jesus, you'll never be poor or sick or have things go bad for you. That has not been my experience I don't think it's true at all. What I'm saying is that following Jesus means that in whatever the circumstances, it is possible for the kingdom of God to break through and surprise us. For the kingdom of God to meet what's lacking and fill it. Do you know what the requirements are for the kingdom of God to move in your life? You to be present and God to be present. That's it. Those are, those are the requirements. You there and God there. And not like the, you know, better version of you. Like the you in your brain that has it all together. Uh, the you, the future version of you that really knows their stuff. The actual you. That's the requirements. The, the current version of you. Like my friend Allison likes to say, the today years old you. That, that's the requirement. The presence of God in the today years old you. In the work of the kingdom, these two things are plenty. They're all that it takes. And I think as a culture, we're in this terrible habit of calling not enough what God has called plenty. What God has called full. What God has deemed enough. I am in a terrible habit of seeing not enough in what God has called plenty in my life. I complain about this middle school all the time. It smells weird and it's not enough and I want a bigger building. We are safe and we are warm and we can worship Jesus and nobody is telling us not to. Sorry, that was just for free for me. Where am I? <laughs> I have a terrible habit of seeing not enough in what God has called plenty. The truth of the scriptures and the best of my ability to be able to read them is that in the kingdom of God, you turning toward Jesus is plenty. And that when God looks at you, he doesn't see lacking and he doesn't see not enough. That when God looks at you, he sees chosen. When God looks at you, he sees set apart. And when God looks at you, he sees mine. We have to stop calling empty what God has declared full. Being in the business of making bread means that uh, to follow Jesus, we are in the business of no longer getting to uh, live our lives in a uh, place of panic, but a place of faith and a place of trust and a place of hope. We don't get to live our lives as if not enough is a place of panic, but we live our lives as if not enough is a place for faith and for trust and for hope. It means having eyes to see uh, room in us and all over the world for the Holy Spirit to invade the empty places and the broken places and the places where there isn't enough. Uh, because if we have eyes to see the kingdom of God at work in our world, then we would see that the story of empty becoming full is around us constantly. It's everywhere. Maybe you've never literally seen loaves multiplied or fish multiplied in your life. Most likely you haven't. My friend Sarah Stokes has this amazing story about taco meat being multiplied that she will tell you. And it's incredible. But maybe like me, that's as close as you've ever gotten to food being multiplied. You're like um, once removed from multiplied taco meat. 
But my hunch is that if you look at your own life and the lives of people around you, you will know and you will see that the story is playing out over and over and over and over again. It's the story of the God whose favorite amount to work with is not enough. That story is everywhere. It's a financial story. I could give you loads of examples of people in this room who did not have enough money for X or Y or Z, and then they did out of nowhere. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a time that things were really tight for us, and my dad needed a new pair of shoes. And you know what happened? One appeared in our mailbox one day, a box of Nikes, and it said, To Tim, from God. Funny note. Short, simple, to the point. <laughs> to Tim, from God. Do I think God literally put shoes in my mailbox? Kinda. I think someone we knew had eyes to see a hole that they could fill, and so they bought my dad some shoes, and they wrote a funny note. And they did it because they were in the bread-making business. Because they were in the business of making something out of nothing. Money, it gets a lot of face time when we talk about this, and it should. I think we have lots of faith troubles when it comes to money. But it isn't the, oh, that's not the only story. The, the story of this isn't just a financial one. It's a story that plays out in all, tons of scenes all over our lives, in friendship and in hope and in healing and in family and gifting and volunteering in all kinds of places. In the Bible, Jesus, he takes a snack pack and he turns it into a buffet and he takes uh, dirty feet water at a wedding and he turns it into the best wine and he takes spilled perfume from a woman and he turns it into this like beautiful priestly act of girl power to be remembered forever. And, and, and Jesus, he takes 12 men who don't really present themselves as particularly proficient. Um, there's a preacher I love named Mike Pilavachi, uh, and he exclusively calls the disciples the 12 morons. He's British, so he can do it. Um, <laughs> and these are the people that he uses to spread all of Christianity. These are the people he builds his entire church on. And if he can do that with a snack pack and dirty water and perfume from a prostitute and 12 morons, then why don't we believe that he would do it with us? Don't you think that he could do something similar with you and kids ministry on the setup team, third and fourth week, or in a small group? Or at your school, or your work, or your family, or your neighborhood, or wherever you go, or with whatever you have to give to whoever that you think might need us. God, God is in the business of taking people like us who do not have enough time, and do not have enough money, and don't know what to say, or when to say it. Us who are insecure, and afraid, and don't feel especially equipped or prepared. He is in the business of taking us, and all of our not enough, and asking us to trust him, and to follow him into something wild all over this world bread making it's very risky business one of the gifts of being an unlikely preacher is the privilege of standing in front of you week after week 100% sure that the fact that you don't stampede out of this room every time I open my mouth is because God will take something not enough and somehow use it to become something he can work with and I figure we might as well go ahead and start believing that's true and living as if it's true, like God might actually be able to use us or that God might actually ask us uh, something of us that's wilder than we imagined or something deeper than we're currently part of, that God might expand our view of what he wants to do with us. The band can come on up. 
Um, There's one more thing I want to glimpse uh, at this story. It happens at the very end. Uh, The disciples, they go around picking up scraps. And did you catch um, how much scraps they picked up, the 12 baskets? Um, Scholars believe that that these baskets were um, more like the size of backpacks, that they weren't like these giant baskets that were filled up, but that they were these like personal-sized baskets of food that each disciple took. And I love that part of the story. Uh, Because in my mind, the disciples, they pick up just enough leftovers to throw themselves an after party. Right? It's like Jesus is saying through providing a little bit too much. Jesus is saying, oh, we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate this thing. There are times in the Old Testament where God does something amazing. And then he comes to his people and he says, celebrate this thing I did or I will kill you. It's like short and to the point. God is the original party or die. Um, And I think this is Jesus' way of saying this. He's saying, oh, we're not going to miss this. We're going to celebrate this. We are going to celebrate when uh, very little becomes plenty. We will celebrate this. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons that it's, uh, uh, this miracle stands out so much that it's included in all four Gospels. Because you can throw a really good party with leftovers. I have a friend whose work hosts a lunch every year that's catered by the Olive Garden. That's a fine Italian establishment, if you don't know. I mean, fine, literally. Um, but uh, they, they cater uh, this party, this work party. And my favorite, one of my favorite texts to receive in a year is when he sends out a group text and he says, I've got a bunch of noodles, I've got a bunch of sauce, and some sausage. I didn't even know they had sausage. You bring the salad, and you bring the wine, and you bring whatever else you need to, and let's have a party. And you know what we do when he sends out that text? We have a party. Because it's worth celebrating plenty. And you can throw a really good party with the leftovers. I think we would be wise in this story not to miss the rest at the beginning of it. And we would be wise in this story not to miss the work in the middle of it. And we would be wise in this story not to miss the celebration at the end of it. Uh, We're going to take a few minutes and be quiet. We do this every week. Selah. We're going to pause and breathe. There'll be verses on the screen. You can read them if it's helpful or just close your eyes or be quiet. Whatever works for you is fine. Um, I have two questions for you. They're this. Where in your life are you calling empty what God has called full? Where in your life are you saying there's not enough when God has said there's plenty? Second question, where in your life do you live from a place of scarcity when God has asked you to live in the faith of abundance. Let's pray. God, we thank you that that you teach us to rest. And I think for some of us, we didn't need anything more than the first few verses of this passage where you remind us to rest and to mourn. And so we ask your spirit to be near in our rest and near in our morning. We thank you uh, for a little boy who teaches us how the kingdom of God works in the world, that you take not enough and turn it into plenty. We thank you for a little boy who is the picture of what you're asking of us. And so God, will you give us the courage to look inside ourselves so that you can show us the places that we are sure there isn't enough that you are asking for because you want to multiply. 
Will you look uh, in us and allow us to look inside of ourselves at the places where we take, uh, we take your favorite amount and we turn it into our excuse. And I pray also that you uh, give us eyes to see how much you appreciate the party, how much you appreciate the celebration of good things and wild things and things that are only possible through you. And so we love you and we thank you. In your name we pray.